Hey everybody, just before we get stuck into the Black Swan, this year for our final year episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We want to include not only our top 10 books, but we want to mention some of your favorite books from this season as well. And we also want to include your questions. So they can be questions about books, podcasting, or whatever you want to ask us. We've already had a few interesting questions come through. So there will be a little bit of a Q&A section. So we'd love to hear what you want us to talk about. Uh, it's our first Q&A, so really appreciate anyone who jumps in there and wants to be involved for the end of your episode. If you head to whatyouwillearn.com slash vote, V-O-T-E, you can vote for your favorite books, you can type a question, or even better, record yourself asking a question so we can include your voice on the episode too. It's one time, baby. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we are reviewing The Black Swan by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, The Impact of the Highly Improbable. Mate, this is a wild ride. It's an eye-opening book. It's a bit of a mind-blower. It's an enjoyable read and it uh, packs a bit of a punch as well. Yes, it's definitely one of my uh, top five books. It will make you smarter and make you really see the world very differently. So the whole concept comes from the idea of how swans were conceived before the discovery of Australia. So before the discovery of Australia, the people in the whole world were convinced that all swans were white, so they had this unassailable belief, and it was all completely confirmed by the previous evidence that they had. Now, when they went to Australia, they had the sighting of the first black swan. So it's the idea that one single observation is all it takes to really invalidate a whole general statement derived from a linear of confirmatory sightings of millions of white swans, all you need is one single black bird to flip everything on its head. Mm. So they're things that have never been seen before, completely unpredictable, completely unimaginable even. So in the real world, we're completely guided by these black swan things because we can't see them coming, we can't manage for them, they just come and completely change the world. He says that the world progresses in jumps, it doesn't just gradually crawl. So there's these big jumps where a black swan comes along Nobody imagined it, nobody expected it, and it completely changes the world. Now, there's three different ways that the whole world misses these black swans, and Nassim talks about it with this idea of history and the triplet of opacity. He says that, first of all, there's an illusion of understanding or how everyone thinks he knows what is going on in a world that is more complicated than they realise. And it's definitely the case. The whole world is extremely complicated, too complicated for one human being to really understand the events in the world. Number two is the retrospective distortion or how we only assess matters after the fact as if they were in a review mirror. And right, everyone just thinks, oh, of course there was white swans after the case, but before the fact, they'll be like, mate, there's no chance of, mate, swans are, swans are white, they're not black. But when the black swan comes, it's obvious that they're black. And the third thing is the overvaluation of factual information and the handicap of authoritative and learned people who think they know shitloads. Mm, definitely. That's the issue is that the the smart people who create bell curves and they fit models of the world and they have all these predictions as to what's happened in the past and that's going to be what happens in the future with you know certain degrees of probability. But the thing is these black swans, because they've never happened before, they can't fit into these models. And because they're completely unexpected, they have a massive impact on the world. So it could be like... You know, World War One, World War Two. That was, you know, World War One. There'd been never a point in time where everybody was fighting each other, or say the big stock market crash of 1987 or the GFC. These big crashes that were completely unexpected, 
at the time. They thought everything's going up. We've got these models that it's going to grow at 8% for the next year and then black swan and it just dropped. Mm-hmm. So let's think of this thought experiment. If you ask someone, what are the three technologies that impact the world today mostly? Um, most people say something like the computer, the laser, and the internet. Now, the funny thing is, if you ask someone 30 years ago what is going to be the three biggest technologies that influence the world, there's no way they could have conceived of these things because they weren't invented. These three technologies are black swan technologies. They're highly improbable at the time, but highly impactful. And these three things really run the world. And now, if you take this concept right now into what the world's going to be in 30 years' time, Um, Right now, all we can really understand is that there's probably going to be black swan things that we can't conceive of right now that are going to run the world. So those people who really try and um, make predictions about what's coming and really rule out the idea of the black swan has a really flawed model of looking at the world. Mm, We can't predict certain things and these black swan things we can't possibly forecast. The world's too complex, there's too much change happening And it's ridiculous to think that we can forecast some of these things. The important thing to know is to start to realize where can black swans occur? What things can you forecast? And what things do you need to quickly understand? I can never possibly forecast this, so I need to expect a black swan. So one good way of not being so vulnerable to black swans is to really understand that you don't understand everything. Mm. And he brings in this concept of Umberto's library. So Umberto came in our interview with Neil Pestrisha It's the idea that um, Umberto, he bought thousands of books just so his 100 books he read didn't really stack up to all the books he hadn't read. So implicit in that is he realizes that there's a shitload he doesn't know in the world. Yeah, it's important to realize that as much as you learn, there's still more to still learn. The more that you start to know, the more you realize that you don't know. So Umberto had this physical visual representation by look i've read 100 books but there's a thousand i still haven't read and so it's just really important to realize that the more you learn the more you know the more it opens doors for things that you still don't know yet so the people like the fed um, and all these big bureaucracies and governments who are making these predictions in the world nothing goes as far to say these people are causing so much damage damage to society that they are really criminals they're driving the, uh, the bus of society really blindfolded because they are so confident in their models of what's going to come in the world. One good example or another analogy he uses is the, the thousand and one day turkey. So you've got a turkey from the day it's born, every single day it gets fed. The farmer comes along and feeds the turkey every single day for a thousand days. On their thousand and first day, it's Thanksgiving, the turkey doesn't get fed, instead he gets its head chopped off. So that's a completely black swan, unexpected event. All the turkey knew was that for a thousand days, the same thing happened over and over and over and over, and never before had he been killed. And he couldn't even imagine it. And then on that thousand and first day, the black swan comes along and kills him. So the conclusions that the turkey was making along the way was, oh, this farmer's a nice guy. He's feeding me every day. Oh, this farmer's a nice guy. He's feeding me every day. And all his past evidence suggested that. And really what happened in the conclusion was his head was chopped off by the hand that fed him. Mm, I like it. So what Nassim does next is he goes through all of these fa- uh, fallacies that mean that you know by using shortcuts in our brain, we miss these black swans. So there's a whole bunch of them. And the first one we want to talk about is the narrative fallacy. So the narrative fallacy means that we create a narrative, we create a story that explains what's happened in the past. So we've got a whole bunch of dots along the way of history and things that have happened, and we create a story 
around why that happened and then we use that story to extrapolate into what's going to happen in the future. Absolutely. One of the um, areas which harbour a lot of black swans is obviously financial markets and the way a lot of the mainstream news really falls into the narrative fallacies uh, described by a story here by Nassim. He says in December 2003, there was a news headline by Bloomberg News at 13.01 that said, Treasuries rise. The capture of Saddam Hussein may not curb terrorism. So that was at 13.01. 30 minutes later, they had another news bulletin that said, Treasuries fall. Hussein capture boosts the allure of risky assets. So the same event about Saddam Hussein, because the markets moved up, they had a story that um, really fit that narrative that they were going for and then the markets went down the narrative fit they took another mm. conclusion from the same narrative yeah exactly exactly they use the same fact to explain two very different things that happened so when it goes up they said it was because of saddam hussein and when it went down they said oh it's because of saddam hussein so that narrative fallacy we've put a simple story on top of a complex thing and that's completely thrown out our whole understanding by thinking okay i understand that but really it's just a whole lot of made-up bullshit so in creating such a narrative, we really uh, pick up a certain amount of information and we draw conclusions that we are confident in, not understanding that it's just one narrative that we drew. There could have been thousands of different narratives that you can draw from and a lot of the mainstream media, they make these narratives just so we make the whole world more explainable when in reality the world isn't explainable um, intrinsically. Mm, we want to assign a story, we want to assign a narrative to explain it and the reason that this narrative fallacy is bad, it's because in order to make a story, it has to be simple. So we're reducing the complexity of the world by fitting the story to it. And whilst it's easier to remember and it's easier to access, we miss a lot of the important details of the story because we say, oh, don't worry, forget about the complexity. We've got this simple story. This is what's happening and this is what's going to happen in the future. And we miss all of the complexities and we miss all of the finer details that really tell the full picture. So even in history, we see everything in hindsight as much more explainable than it actually was. Again, like the present, the history in the past was really uh, a course of um, you know, thousands of different branches that it could have gone down. It happened to go down one and it seemed in hindsight obvious that history went a certain way because we narrate and make a story around it. Okay, so that's the narrative fallacy. The next one he talks about is the round trip fallacy. And that's the issue of thinking if something goes one way, we assume it goes the other way as well. So if we think that A leads to B is not the same as saying that B leads back to A. So his example in the book is two very, very different statements. One statement is almost all terrorists are Muslims and the other statement is almost all Muslims are terrorists. So that's a clear explanation of the round trip fallacy that you can't just say something goes one way and assume it goes the other way as well. So another way, another area that this fallacy pops up is in a lot of research by doctors. So the paradigm a few years ago, a few decades ago in the 1960s that they looked down at mother's milk as if it was something primitive, as if it could be replicated in labs, which they did. They replicated the milk in labs and early days they found evidence of no disease. So they had a little bit of information saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with this replicated, uh, this replicated milk because they had this little bit of evidence and they extrapolated thinking there's a little bit of evidence suggesting that there isn't a chance of disease, they extrapolated that to be a foregone conclusion. Whereas a few decades later, they realized that a whole bunch of people were getting all kinds of sicknesses because they didn't have the mother's milk. They fell for this fallacy. So the doctors, with that little bit of information, um, had this confirmation of their foregone conclusion. 
uh, not understanding. There's a whole bunch of unknowns that they didn't know about at the time regarding mother's milk that they were really disregarding. There's a big thing that doctors do now to cover themselves is they say the acronym NED, no evidence of disease. So no evidence of disease means that in whatever it is, you know, an, an X-ray or an MRI, they found no evidence that the disease is there. So they haven't found a cancer tumor. That's a very different statement to saying there is evidence of no disease. So they can't take their X-ray and say, oh, look, we found this evidence here to prove that there is no disease. So that's very different. So he's saying that no evidence of disease and evidence of no disease is very different. And now how he applies this to black swans, he says that, okay, let's say right now there is no proof of black swans. So right now there are no black swans. That's a very different statement to saying there is proof of no black swans. So it's like saying in, you know, in Europe, okay, there's all these white swans. So we've got no proof that there are black swans. That doesn't mean there is proof that there are no black swans. Exactly. So again, in the say the case of removal of tonsils, early days they found out that they were removing tonsils. There's no big deal. There's there's proof. There's evidence that there's going to be no black swans from the removal of tonsils. But after a few decades, all of a sudden black swan events started occurring because of this removal, like higher risk of throat cancer and so forth, rather than just being a useless tissue uh, based on the early evidence that doctors had about tonsils. I mean, if they had the Umberto's library concept, they would have said, all right, evolution has had um, evolved for thousands of years to have this thing in our throats, the tonsil. There's a lot of things that science doesn't know about tonsils at the moment. There's a chance that there's something outside of our paradigm that the tonsils have a use for. Instead, they took this little bit of evidence that they had and assumed that they're useless. And they probably killed a whole bunch of people in the process. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So that's the round trip fallacy. The next one is a silent evidence fallacy. And so this is saying that there's a lot of evidence out there that is hidden, that we're missing. And there's one uh, example I like is a gambling example. And he says it's actually empirically true that research confirms that gamblers, there is such a thing as beginner's luck. And the reason he says that if you ask most gamblers, more often than not, there is, they are going to say that they had lucky beginnings. And he says the reason for this is if everybody goes and starts, like half the people are going to get lucky, half the people are going to get unlucky. Most of the people who don't get lucky on their first time are going to stop gambling and the people who get lucky at the start are going to keep gambling. So that's why he says that if you go and ask gamblers, is there beginner's luck? They say, yes, the first time I went and gambled, I got lucky. And so we don't ask all the people who aren't gambling if they got lucky the first time or not because they probably didn't. Another place this really manifests itself in crime, our standard view of the typical criminal is really a kind of um, dumb kind of person uh, who's a rebel and so forth. But in reality, that's just the criminal who gets caught. The silent mm-hmm. evidence in this case is there might be very intelligent criminals with a completely different uh, image that we have stereotyped them as just because those smart criminals aren't the ones who get caught. So um, the pool of criminals is very different to our typical understanding of them. Mm. Yeah, that's great. The silent evidence, the things we can't see that there is out there that we're completely missing. The next one is survivorship bias. And so survivorship bias, you know, an example he says, you know, one chapter is how to make a million dollars in 10 steps. And he's saying that out of all the people who tried a business, the ones that got to the end and were successful, they're the people who write books. So he's saying if you started a business and you completely flopped, you're not going to write a book about it. So they think that, okay, this is what I did. This is how I got to the end. This is how I got successful. So if everybody copies me, they're going to, be, they're going to do just as well. But that's not necessarily true because there's a lot of people who did the same things, but it didn't work out. So if you look at the example of a casino with rich gamblers coming out of a casino, 
they might be convinced or they might claim that the taste for gambling is good for the species because gambling makes you rich. You know, in their belief, they've gone into the casino and they've walked out super rich. So this is something that they truly believe. In reality, the house is taking a whole bunch of money over the whole population, but these single individuals are convinced mm. of their story that gambling makes you rich. Another one is like books like The Secret and The Law of Attraction and stuff like that. Like say, Oprah is very big on the laws of attraction. And for Oprah, she's extremely successful and she does that sort of stuff. But it's saying that yes, out of you know, out of everybody who is successful, there is going to be a percentage of people that believe the law of attraction is very valuable to them. But there's also a lot of people that are using the law of attraction and not getting anywhere. So there's a big difference between the starting pool of people and the people who go out the other side successful based on those. So the whole advice to beat this survivorship bias is you don't look at the output or the outcome in your example, Oprah Winfrey. You look at the actual starting point of the beginning cohort of people. So rather than look at the outcome and Oprah Winfrey talking about law of attraction, no, you look at the people who go to Oprah Winfrey's shows and who always talk about the law of attraction because you're actually going to get a much closer um, depiction of what that strategy and what that attitude really leads to by looking at the whole population of who believe that, not just the lucky winners who end out of this casino super rich. Mm, Very important advice for sure. So that's the survivorship bias. Uh, The next one is the ludic fallacy. And he gives us an example here of it. One dude he calls Fat Tony and another dude he calls Dr. John. And so what he says is, okay, we flipped a coin 100 times and it came up heads 90 times. And so if Nassim says to both of these guys, what's the chance that it comes up heads again? Dr. John says, oh, I'm too smart for this. I know that it's independent. The previous coin flips don't matter. So it's 50-50. It's a purely 50% chance. And Dr. John's using the models of the world. But Fat Tony says, hang on. It's come up 90% of the time. I reckon this coin could be a little bit dodgy. I reckon it's almost definitely going to be heads again. So they're two very different ways of looking at the world. One is the statistical model way and one is the Fat Tony way. He's actually got some funny things here about the the casino's biggest losses isn't from this massive whale gambler coming in and you know going all in and winning a massive blackjack hand. He said he's got some funny examples. One was they lost 100 mil when the a, a tiger attacked Siegfried and Royd. Actually, that's not a funny story, is it? <laughs> but but so, so that was no good when uh, he got maimed. Another was when there was, they were building a casino and one of the workers fell off the roof and injured himself and he got so pissed off at the piss-poor amount of money that they gave him as a settlement that he came and planted dynamite underneath the casino. And then the third was when they, every time you win over $10,000, you're meant to submit a thing to the tax office and for whatever reason, the guy at the casino who was responsible for it, instead of submitting it to the tax office, he just put it in a box underneath his desk and never submitted it and they got a massive fine. So they're three complete black swans that have got nothing to do with the roulette wheel or the blackjack table that are full black swans that an insurer could never predict. So that's kind of at the business level. We've talked a little bit at the political level. It can also The concept can really be applied at the personal level as well. When you look at careers, there are some careers like being a... Uh, scientists or an artist that really are dependent on the reverse turkey that you're actually going the um, the turkey every day had something positive happen then something really negative and killed them off at the end when it comes to some careers you're actually trading in something negative something that you're trading in all these hours like the scientists looking for that discovery they've traded in six years of no reward and then boom the big discovery happens and the reverse turkey happens and they've won a Nobel prize mm. 
So they're two very a lot of professions are just regular. You know, you go step by step upwards each and every year. But there are some careers that he calls black swan careers that are, as you say, there's a lot of flat or a lot of nothing or even sometimes down and then there's a big spike up. So they're the two differences in careers. One is the, the slow crawl upwards and one is the a lot of pain until a big eventual just black swan bang. Often the black swan hunters feel a lot of shame or are made to feel shame for not really contributing. You know, at the family reunions, you've got the person who's a scientist who hasn't made the discovery but then you've got the Wall Street banker who's making the big bucks every single year. One, the ball, so the, the Wall Street banker, he's not living a black swan hunting career. The other person is. That's one way of looking at it from, like, say, the artist career compared to, say, the typical person who's just got a, a normal career. Another paradigm of looking at it through the black swan lens is the idea of scalable professions. He says here there's two different ways of looking at careers in that they can either be scalable or unscalable and the two extremes he used to represent these is a speculator someone who's picking stocks is extremely scalable and a prostitute is extremely unscalable so a prostitute is somebody who's working you know a direct trade of time and task for money and that the harder you work and the longer you work the more money you make as a prostitute whereas a speculator it doesn't matter how much you work or how often you work all that matters is the quality of your work and that if you make one good trade, you can get very, very rich. Exactly. So the idea of the speculator, your income isn't subject to gravity because your time, it, money isn't, you're not getting paid per hour or anything like that. The professional, like the dentist or the consultant or the massage therapist, they're putting in extra time per uh, dollar income that they bring in, whereas the person who's a uh, I don't know, a Wall Street banker, it's the same amount of effort they put in for a $10 million trade as it is for a $100 trade. Mm. Now, uh, yeah, bang on. And the, you might think that you know a scalable career is very good because obviously you don't have to work as much and it, all that matters is quality, not quantity. But Nassim says, if I, even though he had a scalable career as a, as a stock picker, he basically said, look, if I had to give myself one advice, I'd recommend that almost everybody picks a non-scalable career. So he says the, the reason being that there is, is is extreme inequality in scalable professions. So for every one superstar pop singer, there are a thousand wannabes that never made a single dollar. So he says that in these scalable careers, there's a lot of inequality. And if you get to the top, it's awesome. But on average, you're doing a lot worse than non-scalable careers. Now, these inequalities weren't really present a few hundred years ago before the internet those 1,000 pop stars, they could have sung to their, um, you know, to their state or something like that. These days, if you're very good in your state, you're competing against the best person on the other side of the planet because of the internet. And that means disproportionately, because it's scalable, the person who's the best is getting everything and all the artists on the other side of the world who are there competing with are getting nothing. Mm, he talks about like opera singers in the 18th and 19th century. The best opera singer in the world could only be in one place at one time on one night. So each night he can go to one party or one event or one opera and sing. So that means there are still so many available slots for other opera singers to sing at all the other places around the world. But now, because we're such a connected world and we can see stuff, your band is competing with the best bands in the world for the same amount. So at the career level, as we just said, scalable professions might not be the way but the good news is now we're coming toward the end with all this black swan understanding of how the world operates. He's got some really practical advice that everybody can take in. 
so hopefully in this podcast you've learned one thing and that's knowing that you cannot make these grand predictions about what's coming in the world but that doesn't mean that you cannot benefit from unpredictability so some one piece of advice he says is maximize your positive serendipity so through a lot of trial and error try a lot of different things and allow yourself to maybe randomly stumble across a positive black swan so positive serendipity is definitely what we want to be after, encouraging more randomness in your life. This might mean that you go to networking events, you might stay around for those three extra cocktails. You know, when you're at a networking event, there's a hundred different people you could be having conversations with. So the odds are that you might have stumbled upon a big idea just from speaking to someone. That's the idea of positive serendipity. So instead of doing that, what Dr. John might have done, he might have worked till 9 p.m., 10 p.m., miss the whole party, miss getting drunk and having cocktails with everybody and missing the positive serendipity, positive serendipitous moment that Johnny could have had. I like it. And another one which is a little bit specific uh, to investing but can also be extrapolated, he says that use the barbell strategy. So rather than say putting 100% of your uh, investment portfolio in things that are medium risk, medium return, rather than doing that, he says maybe put like 90% in things that are extremely, extremely, extremely safe with very low risk of black swans and the other 10% put that in extreme, extreme, extreme high risk. Um, so rather than just being full medium, allow yourself to be exposed to positive black swans. It could go massive. Another is the ability to make distinctions between where the positive and the negative black swans are. So negative black swan business is where the exposure can hit hard and really hurt severely. So this might be something like the, the military. On the other hand, if you understand where the positive black swans are, these are in businesses like science, research, venture capital, and so forth. So for some unexpected reason, this thing really takes off and then you get the benefits of the positive black swan. So like the, rather than, you know, military is often it could be, it's either going to be average or it's going to be really, really bad or some things in business can either be average or really, really, really good. So say you start a blog and you might get almost nothing. But if you get a random person who's got a massive following, say Tim Ferriss shares your blog post and you get a million views and it completely blows up, that's a positive black swan. Another piece of advice, don't look for the precise and the local. In other words, don't predict the black swan. Don't be specific that this black swan is coming. Mm. It tends to make you really vulnerable to the ones that you don't predict. Yeah, basically he says that black swans are inevitable. There's always going to be black swans coming. But don't try to predict a specific, precise, local black swan. Be prepared for black swans in general, but don't think, oh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's a black swan, I'm going to get on. Instead, think, okay, there are black swans coming. How can I expose myself to all these potential black swans? And I think for me, the best piece of advice is just seize any opportunity or anything that looks like an opportunity. Understand that positive black swans don't come along so often and they're probably wrapped up in the guise of some kind of opportunity. So mm. next time that the publisher or the book author or anyone like that says yes to this meeting, you just absolutely drop everything and go and chase that opportunity and go as hard as you can at it. That's what he says. Like Most of these opportunities are probably going to lead to nothing but for every 999 opportunities that are dead ends and waste of time, that one that really works and really takes off could outweigh all of those substantially. So it's worth taking any opportunity you can that could in any way lead to some kind of black swan. Collect as many free non-lottery tickets as you possibly can. 
because there is no downside when you collect these lottery tickets that have such a huge upside opportunity. As many of these lottery tickets as you can, there is the chance that one of these will have a positive plaque on entering your life and then you get a massive benefit from it all. The other final piece of advice, he says, look for the greatest asymmetry. So it's a lot of like similar to things we've talked about in the past, like limit the downside. He says that put yourself in situations where favorable consequences are significantly larger than any possible unfavorable one. So within those opportunities, like you said, the lottery, if you can get a free lottery ticket, the downside is very low and the potential upside is massive. So look for the greatest asymmetry possible. Work hard, not in grunt work, but in chasing the opportunities mm. in maximizing exposure to these positive asymmetries you're talking about. Live in big cities. It's the place where the most uh, positive serendipitous encounters may occur. And go to parties, as we said. If you're a scientist, get drunk, get fucked up, (laughs) and there'll be a chance you'll uh, stumble upon a remark about someone that will will lead you down a whole new path of research. So that's the black swan. And so it's really important to realize that there are black swans in the world. We spoke about why we miss them a lot, but it's important to firstly recognize that there are some. And in many cases, you need to expose yourself to those black swans. Mate, I think the biggest takeaway for me is the understanding that black swans really run the world. Before reading this, I thought the world in the future is somewhat predictable. You might think that the stereotypical person might say uh, AI or what's the impact of virtual reality going to be and so forth. But like that question having relevance 30 years ago, Mm. right now, as Yuval Noah Harari said in 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, all that we know that in 30 years from now, the world is going to look extremely Mm. different, most likely from black swan events that are highly improbable but at the same time highly impactful and this kind of concept, it doesn't, not just at this level of the world and culture, but also in your personal life. If you maximize your exposure to black positive black swan events, these are the things that are going to have the biggest impact in your life. So you want to expose yourself to the positive thing. Hey, everybody. Just a reminder for our final year episode, if you want to vote for what your favorite book of the season was, or if you want to leave a question for us to answer in the Q&A section, Head to whatyouwillearn.com slash vote. 